0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and Solar experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello, and thanks for joining our weekly podcast, Energy Insiders. Um, Day late this week, and apologies for that, but it couldn't be helped. Um, Anyway, onward we go. Um, My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, and I'm joined, as usual, by David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? Uh,
1: Very well, thanks, Giles. And I hope all our listeners are well also. And uh, hello today to our special
0: guest. Indeed, thank you very much. Um, look, uh, our special guest today is Richard Seville from Oricobri, the lithium mining um, company. How are you, Richard? Hello, Jars. Uh, I'm well. And you? Look, very good, very good. And look, we're delighted to have you on board because there's lots lots to discuss and um, uncover, not just about your operations, um, mostly, as I understand it, in South America, and you can um, sort of confirm otherwise, but also the state of the lithium market and the electric vehicle market and um, everything that goes with it.
2: First of all... Uh, yes. Sorry. Yes, our operations are in South America, in in Argentina, and we've been uh, producing for just over two and a half years now.
0: Well, congratulations. Look, we're going to come back to that pretty soon. Um, I just wanted to run over some of the news of the week, as it were, with David, um, and perhaps get your input as well. Look, David, I guess the big thing was this um, financial review conference um, that's on Monday and Tuesday and this sort of, look, I I don't know how you describe it, actually, Um, this new talk about the clean energy target and the inference that the coalition may drop it, which I'm not too sure is a new thing. I guess what is new is the um is the new reason they're coming up with it, because before I think we've heard that the Conservatives have been arguing against the clean energy targets because target because renewables would be too expensive and too costly. Now they're saying that it's um too cheap and um is not needed. Um what do you make of it all?
1: Well I thought Freidenberg's uh, speech was actually reasonably good on facts and reasonably good on analysis as, as far as it went in in talking, but it' it didn't um it doesn't get to the heart of the problem, which is essentially that a whole bunch of investment is needed to replace the eight aging coal-fired power stations in New South Wales and Victoria that supply you know eighty percent plus of those two states electricity. The simple fact is without a uh, a clear policy to to incentivise new generation so that we can get through the capital costs as well as the variable costs. Uh, it's difficult to, to get that new generation built.
0: Well that's exactly right and I think Audrey Ziegenman actually underlined that in her speech today saying "Look, we've just got to get on with it, we need a clean energy target for exactly those reasons that you suggested and I would have thought that if renewables do not require um, any significant subsidy or any subsidy at all, the fact that we need a mechanism basically means that there will be no extra cost, in fact it should all, all be cheaper.
1: Well, well, I'd agree with that. I, I, I described it in the No Your NEM article uh, you, you published today as saying it's an election-losing strategy for Freidenberg. And the reason and the coalition uh, and the reason I say that is because they are behind in the opinion polls. They're behind in the betting odds, and therefore they need to play what we would in Australia would call catch-up football. And I can't see a do-nothing policy as, as giving them that extra uh, edge.
0: Yes, well, I guess um, the problem is, is being able to do anything at all because of that right wing rump in the party. The very same rump that has basically stymied any sort of go-forward on policies for the last, um, well, let's say the last decade. Richard, um, before we get into... Well, well, sorry, Giles.
1: Charles, I might just interrupt there and, and, and steal your segue, uh, <laughs> so to speak, <laughs> uh, and point out that policy goes beyond just stationary energy. Uh, we have published a long article this week looking at the emerging market for electric vehicles and all the policy initiatives that are going on around the world, uh, particularly from Europe, but there's also a bunch of states in the United States, and then we've got the China policy, uh, and yet in Australia, once again, we had an a, a inquiry into vehicle standards and what could be done about that, and we have like zero policies in that area as well. so. So maybe that's a a a chance to to introduce uh, Richard and talk a little bit about what he's seen. Richard, could I ask about the demand side of lithium? If you had more lithium to sell, could you sell it right now?
2: Well, we could sell everything we could produce. Uh there's a shortage out there at the moment. Uh and the there are some there are some commentators who are talking about um uh, the new supply that was coming going to come out of West Australia this year, actually resulting in the satisfaction of de, uh, of demand, that hasn't happened, uh, and um, um, I've seen seen some commentary on that this morning. Uh, so demand appears to be stronger than the, the most people have been uh, expecting this year.
0: does that mean that we're going to eventually i mean we do hear stories about sort of lithium shortages um across the world and in the future and um, you know let's be cautious about going into battery storage and electric vehicles because there simply won't be enough lithium yet it seems to me that there's also a huge amount of resources and reserves um that have been identified i guess the issue is bringing these production facilities online um can you talk about that
2: and maybe talk about i mean do is there enough lithium do we have enough uh it all comes down to cost of production. So yes, ultimately, I'm sure there is enough lithium. I mean, there's lithium in seawater, and it has been extracted from seawater in the past. Uh, so you can you can you can see the supply, and of course, you can see improvements in efficiency in its usage. Uh, so I think the the bigger the bigger question for let's say the next five to ten years is the deliverability of that supply. Uh, and uh, projects historically take longer than, uh, uh, than uh, anticipated by simple analysts, mm-hmm. or analysts doing simple work, I should say, uh, and um, and uh, it's always more complicated than that. Uh, even even the best projects seem to take longer.
1: You know, analysts tend to believe what the company management tell them for a while at least, and I'm not sure that Aura Cobra has been completely um, uh, 100% innocent on that. It's been been a long long ride hasn't it from 2008 or 2009 when you uh, first got hold of these tenements what what what's the main if you had to do it again is there anything you'd do differently
2: um that's a good question i think i think the the the, uh, the, the trouble there is that uh, companies make uh, uh, make statements in good faith as we did uh, and then things turn out to be more complicated uh, than expected uh, as time goes on and projects become, uh, let's say, as the as a wealth of knowledge gets deeper, uh, skills through the sector get stronger, then deliverability will uh, will get. Um, uh, I think be easier to easier to uh, to, to meet what's uh, what's indicated. Can you explain um, maybe
0: exactly the project for those people who don't know exactly what project you do have um, in South America at the, at the northern tip of? I think it's at the northern tip of Argentina, isn't it?
2: it is it's in the northwest corner of argentina uh... on the borders of chile and bolivia really um, and we've built the first new uh, first uh, lithium brine or lithium from brine operation in twenty years um, up at four thousand meters in that corner uh... why because that's where the lithium is in in salt lakes it's very dry um, and uh... lithium gets concentrated in these uh... In these basins, and um, and so you go where the lithium is. And the processing route we use is using uh, solar energy to do the the lion's share of the work, uh, which is the evaporation process to concentrate the brine. Um, so so it was a for us it was a new project, and um, uh, and uh, and uh, as I said, uh, it's all about uh, that wealth of skills within the. Uh, uh, the uh, the sector, there, there really isn't that much at the moment, so people are having to learn as they go.
1: And so, uh, I, for those who don't know, and would be interested to go to the Oracobra website, there's a great video there that shows the conditions and, and some of the process that uh, uh, I found very interesting to look at. I, I guess I might ask, there's an alternative way of making lithium carbonate, uh, which is the main product, I think, at the moment for the EV industry, and, and that uses an Australian ore, spodumene, which is then processed in China. What I, some of the gossip I've been hearing is that uh, because the battery-grade lithium is, has to be such a high standard, 99.5%, is it that, in fact, the brine operations, which have been regarded as cheaper, uh, may not, in fact, have as much cost advantage? But I see your cost is still way below the actual um, sales price.
2: Uh, yeah, well I think that's uh, not correct, uh, that uh, gossip in the market. I mean, FMC, which is a brine operation, Rockwood, SQM, all produce uh, battery grade lithium carbonate from brine, um, and uh, uh, as well as technical grade lithium carbonate. So they, their way of uh, producing it is not as their standard product, uh, but as a percentage stream from their uh, production uh, uh, line. Uh, in terms of ourselves, we actually have installed a a purification circuit on site, which would allow us to, if we chose to, to produce 100% battery grade material uh, at Ola Roz. Um Our costs, as you say, are low anyway. They're three and a half thousand dollars a ton, roughly for last year, uh, and uh, we see those costs as uh, sustainable, if not coming down uh, over time. So, uh, you know, brine operations are cheap, and if they're set up uh, uh, correctly, they'll produce the quality that's necessary. And so
1: the the price, I think, has recently been over $10,000 a tonne. And uh, I guess the, the question, I mean, I see this enormous uh, expansion in demand, depending on whose forecast you look at. And this is the difficulty with it. Uh, demand could maybe be 10 times higher than it is today by 2025. That's an enormous number. And certainly total lithium demand could easily double even over the next four years, you contemplating an expansion, I think, from a theoretical nameplate uh, capacity of 17,500 tonnes, which I must say you've never actually achieved yet, uh, up to 35,000 tonnes. But you've got a resource that's like 20 or 30 times bigger than that. Why just stop at 30,000 tonnes?
2: Uh, well, we, we we may not stop at uh, 35,000 tonnes. Uh, uh the idea is to expand step by step up to what is a sustainable maximum production level uh, now these uh, resources are in brine bodies they're uh so they're um within aquifers within sands and uh, silts and gravels and it's all about the sustainable sustainable pumping uh rate from those bodies uh so i think of the resources Long-term slow cookers, if that's the way to think about it, um, and um, I would imagine that Dollar or Oz will expand uh, above its uh, above the first expansion level quite significantly, uh, but that will take time. Um, yeah. So, are there any sort of
0: environmental concerns about the mining of um, lithium in brine? And um, if there are, what are you able to do
2: about that? The sensitivities. Uh, uh... in these dry areas of course is uh, impact on fresh water resources and and that will be a project specific um, aspect um, so i mean uh, the local people they have their animals the llamas uh... and um, access to fresh water uh... is important to them if you do if you do things properly then you won't have a s uh, an impact on the uh... the fresh water resources um, and uh, certainly, that's the case in uh, our development at Oz. Uh, that's the main sensitivity. If you're looking at overall environmental impact, they're very low. These operations. I mean, there's no sulphide waste dumps or anything like that. Uh, uh, the visual impact's very low uh, for the uh, uh, for the operation. We produce with uh, the main waste product, which is salt. Interesting, off a of salt lake, uh, being contained in the evaporation ponds at the end of the operation. So a low environmental impact these operations have.
1: I, I want to come back to the um, sort of mining operations in a bit, but if I could just talk a little bit more about the uh, industry. Uh, I guess recently we've seen some uh, tie-ups between car companies like Great Wall recently did a deal with an Australian lithium sup- supplier just recently and invested in it. And I believe um, uh, OraCobra is in joint venture with a subsidiary of Toyota. Um, Do you see the battery manufacturers, the car manufacturers wanting to tie up this raw material uh, as a sort of continuing trend?
2: I I do, and um, uh, that's a point I made in the presentation I made in Montreal, the keynote address at the the Ethan Supplier Markets Conference. I think those partnerships are very, very important. Uh, One the, uh, the users want to secure supply uh... and secondly because of these projects are not traditionally bankable uh... the project developers need that kind of backing to actually get the projects off the ground uh... so it creates these um, you know, in effect uh... win-win or symbiotic relationships So it's uh, it's gonna happen and it's quite necessary
1: and how would you regard your workforces technical skills uh... level you know a knowledge base now compared to uh the other i guess brine based uh producers Do you... uh
2: well i think we've learned an awful lot i mean that's a that's the uh going back to my earlier comment that's a uh, part of the comment about um, uh oversimplification or, or underestimating challenges have you want to put it uh, our workforce now is uh, uh, is very experienced well trained and uh I would say a high performing work uh, workforce. When we started, uh, we were basically starting from a very low uh, level of understanding, Although you pull consultants in, they are only consultants and the real learning happens internally.
1: and so what's what's the key sort of skill? is it what do you call the person who who knows about it? is it is it a, a lithium engineer or a <laughs> a reservoir engineer, what is a, a manu- where, where is the where do you need the skill the most? is it I mean, you, you guys stuffed up your your pond evaporation model to put it frankly, uh, but you you fixed that up, I presume, but but where do you need the skills the most?
2: Um, i th- I think it's in the chemical engineering side uh, which covers uh, all of those things you talked about except for the uh, hydrogeology, the uh, reservoir engineering. Uh, that's relatively straightforward. Um, in terms of impacts in the short term, and of course, as I mentioned, it's important more from the longer term. Um, so the real, the real aspects where skills are are uh, um, need to be developed is in all those processes relating to how you treat the brine, whether that's in the ponds or whether it's in the plant. And for us, just uh, it was very much uh, learning in the new circuit, which is the purification circuit. It's the first time such a circuit has been. Uh, built at such a scale and integrated into a primary operation.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I forg- forgive the stuff ups myself, but <laughs> uh, they're always a shock when they happen. And, and I'm going to hand it back to Giles in a second, but the last question I guess I wanted to ask is just looking at the at the price. And I'm not asking you to forecast crop price, but I guess I'm, I am am asking, would you be inclined to contract long your output longer or shorter? And what can you say about your contract book at at, at the moment?
2: The Joint venture is doing some work on that at the moment in terms of longer-term strategies, that change in, that change in market where you've got some very large users wanting to uh, tie up uh, large parts, uh, large supply uh, uh, in the future, it will change the way that companies do business. Uh, so if you think that at the moment we've got something like 70 customers and SQM's got 210 customers, I think, uh, the new customers are going to want twenty thousand tons and forty thousand tons and maybe more than that so uh, for the for the EV uh, uh, EV uh, business model so you know one a million a million vehicles is takes an awful lot of supply so the model will change and and we will end up changing how we uh, do business I'm sure in that environment um, so uh, so yes I mean those those will those cost, uh, those arrangements will turn out to be long term arrangements rather than more the model now which is shorter term arrangement
1: and of course the longest term arrangement is a takeover of the company but uh if you were contracting it sounds to me like you'd rather contract short uh whilst whilst demand is still growing
2: well uh, there's a difference between volume and price uh and I think uh, I think the the uh uh in terms of volume uh I'm quite happy to be uh locking away uh, uh, large amounts or or, or contractual arrangements over longer periods of time. Uh, the important thing then to make sure is that the 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 pricing mechanisms are fair to both parties uh, for that kind of longer term relationship. I'm just wondering if I can um butt in here and just um I'm just
0: fascinated to learn because we we hear lots of different forecasts about the battery story for the battery storage industry and also for electric vehicles. Tell us what, what what's getting you excited about the market going going forward. I mean, is it in stationary storage and the sort of the power walls and the other sort of um, household batteries um, batteries? And I should probably mention a couple of other brands just to make it um, uh, more more of a balance. And um, or is it the electric vehicle market? And and what are you seeing out there from your point of view?
2: Well, at this point in time, it is the electric vehicle market, uh, and it is uh, it is those um, uh, those businesses that are. Are looking at, uh, at their future supply. Uh, I think the stationary uh, battery storage comes later. It's uh, it's what's out there a couple of years behind. Um, and um, uh, I think we should we should watch that one very carefully. I think it's going to surprise on the upside.
0: And what about electric vehicles? Is is it being driven by the um, the costs and the um, um, and the changing costs, or is it being driven by some of these country policies that we've heard from the likes of the UK and France and China and A- even India, talking about you know banning all non-electric vehicles um, by certain dates?
2: Well, I think the I think government policy creates the framework. Um, and uh, it's provided a very, very good framework for the development of the industry. Uh, and if you look at the Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese uh, motivations, um, it, it's about clean air. It's about um, developing or being a world leader in a new sector. Uh, and it's good strategic thinking. Um, so if you get the right framework, then the other things follow. So you've seen you've seen battery costs go back to the cost thing come down dramatically um, over the last five years to a point where you can see that give us another let's say three years, you you'll have a cost competitive product, um, uh, not on a total cost of ownership over the life of the vehicle. But in terms of a vehicle that you can uh, choose to buy, because it's going to be the same price for the same quality if you to mean uh, compared to a, an ICE vehicle. Does, 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 so, does
0: the lithium? Does the li- potential rise in the lithium price and the potential shortage put any of that at risk? Uh,
2: no, I don't think so. Uh, of course, all automotive mon- uh, manufacturers are very concerned about any cost input. Um, but uh, uh, you know, a doubling of price on a thirty let 's say thirty kilowatt hour um, battery system if you were to uh, double the price on that, it would be an extra thirty kilos so it 's small
1: and it's I was small. speaking to uh, Victor Earle at EV Volumes, who I want to give a plug to because he he follows every make and every model, and if you want to want to find out which which cars are selling last month, you should head over to his consultancy. But I was chatting to him about the market in China, and he was uh, pointing to the bus market uh, as as where they put in um, a lot of electric buses in in China now. And of course, the battery for a bus is uh, you know probably equivalent to five or six, three or four cars at least.
2: Yes. Indeed, and, and the, um, uh, that, that, that's certainly big, and if you want to get those dirty diesels off the roads, that's a, a thing that, uh, uh, that government policy again will drive. Uh, the, a thing that came across my desk this morning was that the EV penetration rates in China are now hitting 2%. Uh, so that's uh, that's uh, making substantial inroads now.
0: It's, it's extraordinary. And look, maybe just sort of um, starting to finish off where we actually started, which is around government policy. I mean, we've just been talking about some of those global initiatives to sort of you know drive the uptake of EVs. And I think David sort of pointed at the start that not only do we not have any sort of credible emissions policy, or in fact any emissions policy at all, and we don't have any vehicle standards policies, let alone sort of electric vehicle um, policies. How do you see that? As an Australian company working overseas, um, and you look at all that's happening around the world, how do you see Australia placed in, 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 in amongst its peers?
2: Well, it seems like we're having a different conversation in Australia. Uh, uh, almost everywhere else in the world you go, people are talking about the move to renewables and the move to the electrification of transport and everybody's on that journey. Um, you come back here, and it's, we're still having conversations about coal, and it just feels like we're on a, on a different track. So, what do you think can be made to, done to change that? Uh, <laughs> um, well, Charles,
1: I'll, I'll jump in here.
2: It'll take a bit more time, I think. That's it. Time. Charles, <laughs> I,
1: I think as, as much as we like to blame the federal government, I actually think there's a case for the uh, that where this is acting local, much more local, could actually have an impact. Uh, All the research indicates that one of the most effective policies in the short term for incentivising electric vehicles is to give them free parking, right? That's not a federal government responsibility, that's something Clover Moore uh, in Sydney and her equivalents in Melbourne and Brisbane and in every other major town could get done tomorrow and that would instantly give a reason for someone to own an electric vehicle uh, because people love to be able to uh, get, get a parking spot.
0: Well, that'll be a start. Look, there are some initiatives on that. We've got sort of, you know, some free charging stations, and I think there's talk about stamp duties, and I think Queensland actually unveiled half of a, um, or, or the start of an EV um, strategy. Um, Richard, do you have any plans for any investment in Australia, or are you
2: just concentrated overseas? No, we're fully concentrated on, really, all uh uh We have a... Uh, expansion there to do. Um, and then uh, you might have picked up we've got a lithium hydroxide plant that we'll be uh, a partner in in Japan. Um, so the lithium carbonate we produce will be converted to lithium hydroxide and integrated into manufacturing there. Um, but really that's enough because Olaroz has got that expansion and potentially more as we discussed earlier. Uh, that's more enough to keep but us busy. What's the price
1: now. premium for lithium hydroxide? I uh... Uh,
2: it's in the order of uh, uh, th- it varies. Traditionally, it's been the order of a couple of thousand dollars per ton, uh, and it's actually lighter. So the per lithium unit, it's more than that. Um, uh, but but recently, it's expanded up to uh, five or six, and then it's tightened a bit more and recently.
1: That's because it gets used, I think, as a, as electrolyte. Does it in the batteries? I...
2: No, it's more the uh, the cathode format. Uh, so, uh, high nickel cathodes uh, are using lithium hydroxide uh, rather than lithium carbonate. Mm. Look, um, Richard, it's
0: been great talking to you. Um, thank you very much for giving your perspective, not just about your operations, but also the um, the lithium market and um, and the battery storage and the EV market and um, and some commentary about um, the sad state of um, policy development. Um, so, Charles, Charles, it's worth there?
1: pointing out the uh, I, I like to point out as an next analyst, even though I never covered mining stocks. Uh, the only thing I know about uh, I should always advise every advisor to remember Mark Twain's definition of a, of, a, of a mine with with uh, <laughs> a policy. Apologies to Richard, but it's a famous old saying. Uh, definition of a mine: a ho- hole in the la- in the ground with someone standing above it. Um, uh, and, but,
2: <laughs> well, we don't we don't have any holes in the ground there, David. So we're, we're not really there. A you mine. go. And, but the
1: lithium sector's up to four and a half billion market cap now, and it would have been a, a heck of a lot less than that two years ago. And and I'll be surprised if it's if it's not bigger. But the companies may be different. Uh, a few more years down the track.
0: Hmm. Yeah, good one. Indeed. Okay, look, thanks very much. Um, look, just I'm just going to finish. Um, one, I'm going to finish with a, um, a shout out to our sponsors, uh, Solaray and uh, Solaray Energy, and Watt Watches. Thanks very much for your support. There's a couple of other items in the newsletter this week or on the website this week which I re- reckon of, re- of interest. Um, one's a bit more about battery storage and the comparison with pumped hydro. and. Um, The Monash University is going 100% renewables by 2030 and putting in a microgrid, and I think we're going to see a lot of stuff on that as well. Um, David, have I missed out anything? Is there anything else coming up on the horizon that we need just to flag to our listeners? Well, it's
1: the All Energy Conference, but anyone who's going to that and know all about it. That starts in the next couple of days. Are you going to that, Giles?
0: Look, I am, yes, just going down and sort of catch up with all the solar people and and the storage people down there. So um, look forward to catching up with anyone when we're down there. Look, um, once again, thanks, David. Uh, Thanks, Giles, for having me. And thanks, um, Richard, for um, being with us. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. And um, once again, uh, please send us your feedback. Please um, go on the iTunes and give us a review. That helps, actually, in this being disseminated. We're now being listened by 2,000 people a week, which is just fantastic. And um, thanks for listening. Spread the word. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solarray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.